0: You're listening to the ninth episode of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. A lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not an attack on faith. This is about depression. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you. Episode 9, Solitary. In 2021, people might hear the title of this song and assume it's about prison. That's on purpose. I've never done any actual time any more than Johnny Cash ever did. In fairy tales and many other stories, ancient and new, when characters go downward, especially if they fall, this is usually bad and there's danger.
1: Look at that young man, he's going to fall out the window if he's not careful. Have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen someone whom you feel is in danger of a
0: fall? When they descend to where it's dark, this is especially scary and dangerous too. So, many people like Lucas and Tolkien, Lewis and Disney, do the up and light equal good and down and dark equal bad thing. This is why in so many stories, the main character coming back up out of the dark into the light is the moment when things turn around. This can be seen in so many stories, including movies like The Empire Strikes Back. When Luke Skywalker is in training under Yoda, he climbs down into a dark cave or hollow tree or whatever it is, and faces his own darkness down there, though he doesn't really understand what's happening. Then he climbs back up out into the light. But when he prematurely goes to the Cloud City, literally a city up in the brightly sunlit clouds, he is soundly defeated, and a Jedi Icarus falls down through clouds-lit orange by a sun that is setting now. Darkness is falling. Night is coming. Similar images are in The Dark Knight Rises, The Hobbit, Beowulf, and a host of others. The next song in the concept album I was forming was very much a thematic continuation of where the previous one had been going. I was expressing my search for identity, freedom, understanding, and direction in terms of digging for them. I was delving, trying to dig up either all that good stuff itself or the ability to obtain it. But the songs present the image of digging until one is deep underground, discovering dark, mysterious, ancient stuff that most people don't want to mess with. It's down too deep, they apparently think. You could get lost and trapped down there. They were only willing to scratch the surface, so to speak, despite attempting to dispense knowledge and wisdom to everyone. The song is about deciding, maybe I had gotten lost and trapped down there alone forever. Back in the day, I bent the ear of anyone who presented him or herself as a counselor, pastor, or anything of that kind. I desperately wanted a Morpheus, a Yoda, a Splinter, a Gandalf, a Ben Kenobi, or a Mr. Miyagi. I wanted someone who knew things, or failing that, someone who might say something to me that I hadn't heard 6,000 times before already, something to make me think, someone to challenge my thinking, answer my questions by exchanging them for harder, better ones, someone like Jesus in the Gospels, not Jesus at Bible study. In my experience, take troubled thinking to adult advisors, and they will advise you to think less, and they will tell you to do whatever they ended up doing in life. Move to Cleveland, they will say. Train carrier pigeons and eat sushi. Get a Shetland. Marry a woman who works as a driving instructor. Buy her figs. Women love those. And have three kids, as many of them boys as possible. Put them all in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and don't get any of them vaccinated. Invest in Apple. Buy Toyotas and take cruises to Greece. That's what will work for you in your position. I know, because that's what I did in the 1970s. I poured out my heart over and over as to exactly where I was, and what was hard, and what I was trying to do. I think it is fair to say that not a single person knew what to say to me, apart from those who reflexively blamed the victim, as to some of what had happened in my life and the position I was currently in. I was standing on the edge of my birth culture, looking back, and not relating to any of it, but terrified of being cast out. People I confided in broke my confidence, and mostly said the same things as each other anyway. They told me that what I was feeling was normal that everyone goes through the same things, that God had a plan and a wife for me if I only waited. Well, nothings come to those who wait, I have found in my life to this point. A whole lot of nothings, and there's nothing more depressing than nothing. I can't convey how alone my life had been up to this point, but the depth of my solitude was really starting to sink in well before I reached twenty-five. I'd wandered the halls at high school, not really connecting to anyone— and once I graduated, lost touch with everyone pretty much entirely. I went to youth events, feeling like some kind of dark shadow over everything, not really connecting to anyone or anything much, and then our church split into two unequal pieces, leaving me in the much smaller, older, more dusty one, with the biggest fear of thinking about anything much, let alone re-examining or changing anything at all. I got a degree at university, making no real connection to anyone much there, professors or students, and graduated never hearing from anyone I went to university with again. Then I failed to get accepted to teacher's college that first year and stopped applying entirely. The Christian school gave me my first real chance at connecting to Christians outside of my old, odd little church, and they'd cast me out like a syphilitic leper with AIDS. The song I wrote about all of this expresses the stillness, the emptiness, and the gloom of my internal landscape. There was a feeling that I was waiting, 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 all alone, and that I would be waiting forever forever, and nothing would happen. It was like grade 12 Canadian literature all over again. There's a reason why books written in Canada feel like that. I teach high school in a small Canadian town neighboring the one I grew up in and where I was when I wrote this song. I often tell the kids, you know the worst thing that is likely to happen to you all unless you do something quick in this town? They talk about getting murdered or arrested or addicted to crack, and I say, no, nothing. Unless you do something and quick, nothing will happen to you. Nothing at all. You will do and experience and be nothing. So you need to do whatever it takes right now to make sure that no matter if you live here for the rest of your life or choose to move somewhere else, that you are doing stuff and growing and learning and playing a role in what's going on, getting out of the house and making sure that something happens to you. There is in the lyrics the thought that there might well be many, many others in a similar position an identical mood to my own at that point, all sentenced to languish in solitary, silent darkness and never share their common experience with anyone. There was some kind of spark of hope that writing out where I was and what it was like there would ring out and have an answering echo from other people somewhere on this planet, but that never really happened. There was still the assumption that living without a mate was a bit of a sentence, like jail. Many brethren guys and girls don't ever live alone at any point in their life. Many of them grew up with their folks, rented a house together with their friends, all going to the same university or college, and sharing all of the bills. Many of them live with other brethren people their age, from their marriage. That hadn't really been an option for me. I knew of no brethren people, or even people I knew, who were going to the same university the same year I did. Most Brethren people either didn't go to university or went to the one in Ottawa that I wasn't going to, the one with no teacher's college, nor art and music programs. By my second and third year, there was a house rented by some Brethren girls who were going to my university, but guys and girls cohabitating would have been an utter scandal in our church, so I rented a room in a rooming house with junkies and strippers, all for the sake of appearances, you understand. I got invited into the plain-faced stripper's room once. She was having a tough day and needed someone to confide in. Guy trouble. I sat on her bed across from her as she had no furniture besides the bed. She confided at length. I listened because she didn't have anyone to talk to and needed somebody. I didn't know how to flirt, and so I didn't. She wore jeans and a baggy sweatshirt and no makeup, and when I had to go to school, she thanked me for being so incredibly kind to her and invited me to come see her perform. I politely declined. I'd never been in a bar before. Barefax and the Byward Market seemed like a bit of a jarring start to all that sort of thing. My professionally unclothed upstairs neighbor soon moved out under cover of night without paying her rent, leaving loose in the halls either her or her boyfriend's pet ferret, which lurked hungrily in the shadows, eyes glowing, when I went out to use the bathroom for a few nights after her stealthy exodus. I don't know what eventually became of the poor thing. My dad's father, all of his brothers, and one of my mom's two brothers all got divorced. In the seventies and eighties, it seemed like everyone's parents at school were getting divorced. When I was 17, I once stood in the middle of a dark farm road miles out in the country. And rather than selling my soul to the devil to learn how to play the blues, I promised God I would wait for a wife he approved of so long as he provided someone who wasn't gonna divorce me. Someone I was compatible enough with to remain married to for the long haul.
1: We used to sing a little chorus in our Sunday school that comes to mind At this time, I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two ways meet. Satan, too, was standing there, and he said, come this way. I have lots and lots of pleasures I can give to you today. But I said, no, there's Jesus here. Just see what he offers me. Down here, my sins forgiven. Up there, a home in heaven. Praise God, he's the one for me.
0: I didn't care, I told him, if I had to stay single until 25 or even 30. I would wait. No free samples. No trysts based around just having sex with no plans to ever have a serious relationship. No starting relationships with sex first, questions later. Well, I was aware then, as I am now, that this runs entirely counter to the entire Canadian culture I grew up and continue to live in, and I never did learn how to play the blues. What I did was, every time I met a girl, and it seemed to be working out, I'd ask God if it was okay to proceed with her. Was He with me in this? Would this last? And I always felt like it was okay with Him, then tried to make the relationship continue from the comfortable start it seemed about to be having and then, invariably, disaster. I soon felt like I had the mark God gave Cain, only instead of protecting him from being killed for inventing murder, it was protecting me from women. Toward the end of my dating life, I met one girl working in a pet store and hung out with her two weekends and thought maybe something was starting up. We'd had great talks about depression and church people not getting it, so I asked God if it was okay to proceed. The third weekend, she didn't show up or return my calls turns out she'd hung herself from the ceiling beam above where we'd watched a dvd on our tv the week before using the scarf she'd been wearing i told one of my christian friends about this and accustomed to me and women by then he wholly inappropriately i felt burst out laughing rather than commiserating with me about something that i found very upsetting he and i aren't friends anymore But the pattern of things, starting up with a woman, then my asking God if this one had any potential, and the whole thing crash-landing, was so ingrained by that time that he recognized it immediately and laughed at the story as being very, very me, but to an unexpected degree. The clear conclusion was that this latest one had promptly provided clear evidence that there was no future in a relationship with her. Most other objects of my interest did much less dramatic things on cue, like getting engaged to other guys and or moving to Florida or, in fact, Thailand. The dread of a solitary life was on me back then, and it has happened. And I think maybe it's not just me. I think many people find that as they go into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, many of their coworkers and relatives and childhood friends drift away and just won't be part of your month anymore. I think more people live alone for more of their lives now than ever before. Back in the day, I racked up enormous, heroic, and staggeringly epic phone bills talking to whoever would stay on the line. I wrote lengthy letters, too. I want connection too much. It drives people away when you want so badly to talk to someone, and so you talk too much and too long, especially if you are pathologically truthful and helplessly go personal, dark, and deep in first conversations. I've never really valued or invested in small talk or casual acquaintances. I've never known what to do in groups. Put me in a group of five people, and I'll probably only want to talk to one of the people tops or maybe go pet their cat. Or, if you pay attention, you might notice me switching between only talking to one to only talking to another, and then only talking to another in the group, so it looks like I'm not ignoring anyone. I don't know what the point of groups is. Three people to a conversation is my max. Three people, including me, that is. Our church loved to quote Matthew 18.20, which promises where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. I've always wondered if maybe this was a maximum person's church limit, like a fire code. No more than three persons gathered together. Two or three, not four, five is right out. There is in this song a bit of self-mocking suspicion that maybe I was doing all of exactly the wrong things to have people, dare I say a woman, to spend time with. But the reality was I was looking at being alone pretty much all of the time for the rest of my life writing things. I'm completely alone right now. I was yesterday and I will be tomorrow too. As to sparing me divorce, God has certainly kept his promise. Like I've said in previous podcasts, I grew up in a quiet, mild, traditionally fundamentalist, deeply repressed rural Canadian culture. If we heard someone in a room laughing loudly or raising his or her voice or performing overmuch socially, we had that whole British-Canadian, who does he think he is anyway, or is she going crazy? Is she drunk? What's up with her? Thing. We'd get pleased about things and look forward to them, but we weren't really many of us in the habit of announcing how excited we always were about things like Americans with awesome podcasts and YouTube channels do. Today we begin our exciting trip through the parables of Jesus, and let me tell you, it will be exciting. I'm really excited about this video. I'm really excited with how it's turning out. That was exciting enough you interrupted your intro. It's very exciting. It's exciting just because of the suspense to begin with. Um, And I hope that the video does well for the channel. As young brethren women... We were supposed to dress sweetly and enticingly, but innocently and wholesomely. As young brethren men, we were supposed to dress preppily business casual and affluently, but not in attention-getting or cool or out-there ways at all. We were certainly not to be intense, stylin' nor radical. Our language was supposed to be the same, free of emphasis and color, filled with quiet hints, passive-aggressive suggestions, and minced curses like what the heck and holy frig! in moments of a special emotional outburst. Some Christian people I know still say GRACIOUS to communicate WHAT THE fuck? The 80s music industry, eventually abandoning the cocaine and suits and embracing heroin and flannel, eschewed the plastic bored nasal vocals and went screaming and growling primally into the 90s. But we brethren folk had never been encouraged to embrace that primal, rough-edged, grungy side of ourselves. We'd be more at home with the suits and the nasal, dead-eyed boredom. Music was supposed to be pretty, soft, grateful, quiet, and soothing. That's what Christians were supposed to like. That's what Christians were supposed to be like. Painfully, cautiously, tidily, understatedly sincere. But some people like strong black coffee. A long hard run at dawn. Super sour candy. Skiing. Bungee jumping. Aggressive workouts extra-hot hot sauce, dressing in bright colors, any number of bracingly intense rather than muted, cozy experiences. Man cannot live in beige alone. There are other pants to be worn. This is true of music as well. For many brethren kids, the unleashed, snarling energy and simple groove of a group like ACDC or Aerosmith was exactly what they wanted to reach out and grab over parental objections to get in touch with emotionally deep inside themselves to wake them up to the terribly unchristian idea that maybe we were all of us alive and young my parents once drove to brockville to a fair my sister had accompanied some other rebellious young brethren teens to to retrieve her and take her home in shame as they'd gotten a call letting them know that these teens weren't just at the fair to see prize sows ride the Ferris wheel and eat cotton candy, but also to hear some live Canadian rock music in the form of Kim Mitchell, who is a wild party. Rah, rah, ole. At first, my level of primal, face-melting energy in music was limited to Neil Diamond, ABBA, John Denver, and Simon & Garfunkel at their most rocked out. But this soon progressed through The Police and U2, given a boost by how grungy Neil Young's guitars were when he felt like plugging in from time to time 20 years before grunge hit. some Jimi Hendrix, and I was in. But some kids were listening to Christian albums that were sanitized clones of whoever was big at the time. And I was having none of that. The middle-aged youth pastor who was having the affair with my aunt at the time spoke to us teens at youth group in his palatial home about how worldly music often seemed to have sexual content in the lyrics. And offered us a chart from a book with helpful hints about what Christian substitute bands to accept. Love ACDC, but know it's not honoring to our Lord? Try Christian Australian Rockers John 3AD. Secretly listening to two live crews as naughty as they want to be? Try to live for him as sanctified as they want to be. Love the Rolling Stones? You'll love the Living Stones, but without the guilt. Enjoying Cannibal Corpse? How about Lazarus Raised? Megadeth? We've got Mega Life right here. Love Black Sabbath? How about kept Sabbath? Beastie Boys, check out Priestly Boys. Run DMC, how about run WWJD in the house? God's House. Word of God. I wanted to be in on wherever it was that music was actually coming from, the purest source of it I could find, the roots of it, with no intermediary filtering mothering there to shield me from the ravages of the rock experience.
1: We have... Remember, praise his name, till you go insane. You get him on your brain, you never feel the same. Cause he rocks and rules, he's nobody's fool. He's the only cool, Did you get out these back school. in Galilee, his hood was there, you see. He died for you and me, but my only plea. His name was Jesus Christ, and you should read his life. And be a faithful wife, who washes everything. Whose house? God's house. Whose house? God's house. Praise His house, praise His house. House. house, praise His house, oh, house. Pu- ye yes. house. praise His house, praise His house, praise His house, praise His house, praise His house. He is my only Lord. Make it past to go I'm driving in His Ford but you feel no. Backpack smoking guy, wears a cotton wife. Don't know my Savior's eyes, what they all despise. And I don't need tattoos. Well, this thing's here to prove that I am in God's crew. Music makes me move. My home is got a me. Your word of JC, His death has made me free. Uh huh, eternally. Who's high? God's house. Who's housing once God's house? Who's housing once? God's house. Who's hosting what? God's house.
0: Pete, my roommate in first year university, had played distorted guitar on my own cheap electric plugged into a little plastic practice amp. He also played me various power ballads by bands who mainly did hard rock and heavy metal. That really was a thing then.
1: What the f- is that? It's Don't fear the reaper, man. Now you're not playing that pussy shit in the Blue Torpedo, man. I told you. Blue Oyster Cult. Now give a f- if it's Blue Oyster Cult, man. It's a pussy song. If it's B.L.C., uh, how could it be pussy? Let me tell you something. Every band puts out at least one pussy song. So they can find out who the its f- are. Now take it out.
0: Albums of aggressive hard rock or metal with maybe two chart-topping, soft, sugary, passionately sincere ballads in there, often starting with one of those on track three, right after two consecutive face-melters to cool it off a notch, summoning all of the androgynous male singer's female energy and thereby winning over girls across the world. you got to kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you got to
1: take it up a notch. But you don't want to blow your wad, so then you got to cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules.
0: At Barrakel Christian Youth Camp, two pretty teens with hair as big as Oz foxes they were Buchanans I think, had donned yellow and black striped sweaters and sang along to a power ballad by Christian power metal group Striper, with Michael Sweet singing at his most feminine on a song Pete had already played me back in Ottawa. always had a soft spot for a good power ballad. They're kind of like hymns. That was my in for heavy music. Sitting in the room with a couple hundred brethren teens, leading up to a church division in which people who enjoyed contemporary Christian music and Bible translations would largely leave, I connected that Striper song with various music Pete had played me, and I soon picked up on cassette one summer, first Soldiers Under Command, followed by Striper's provocative album To Hell With The Devil, which I had to convince my parents was actually Christian and only looked Satanist. In retrospect, it would have been much less confusing and easier for me, but perhaps somewhat on the nose, if Striper had simply called their album The Devil Can Go F*** Himself. Striper was way, way, way too heavy for me at first. I liked the vocal harmonies very much. and loved the intricate, classically inspired guitar soloing, but found the rhythm guitars sounded to me at first just like someone aggressively scrubbing pigeon droppings off a tin barn roof with a stiff wire brush. I gradually got into the sound, though. It was quite the thing. Here were Christians who played their instruments hard enough and well enough to have the sincere respect of their secular peers in the music industry. They weren't imitators of someone. They were doing their own thing. Instead of reverently, quietly, and shamefacedly trying to share their faith with unwilling strangers like we did, they were wearing yellow and black striped spandex, twisted sister hair and makeup, and jumping around throwing handfuls of Bibles into stadiums filled with screaming fans drowning them out in turn with stratospherically high singing and literally shrieking out my own childhood beliefs to tens of thousands of people as explosions went off all around them. Because not only could Michael Sweet sing far higher than I ever would be able to, he could scream in a falsetto, with an apparent casualness that was deeply impressive. He wasn't trying to imitate anyone, in fact other metal singers despaired of ever imitating him.
1: See I can't do it long, how do you do it long? See it just, I do it and it's just gone. (laughs) You just keep doing it. Oh my God. I thought you were gonna blow up!
0: Holy frig. My goodness. What the heck? Gracious. I met at this point the aforementioned Brethren Light guy's gay brother-in-law when he was visiting in town. Said brother in law was musically talented and enrolled in a Texas based de gayifying program, which would, in the coming years, move to San Francisco only for the two founding pastors to run off together into those rarefied streets, perhaps tossing riceroni at their same sex wedding and dodging the streetcars there. Upon his asking me disapprovingly about the glam metal androgynous guys, on the cover of my soldiers' under-command cassette, I said, I don't think any of them are gay. Check their singer out. He can sing exactly like a woman. Well, the hoping-to-be-cured gay evangelical Christian said, Turn that off, and never play anything like that with me in the room again. I laughed this off, but turned my little black ghetto blaster off as well. The next time I spoke to him was over the phone in San Francisco, discussing his brother-in-law telling folks at the Christian school I had briefly worked at that I must be gay due to my lack of normal homophobia, and therefore was not to be trusted around children. Not long after, my hoping-to-be-straight Christian friend would suddenly die of a hemorrhage, not, as some gossiped, of AIDS. I miss arguing with him, just like I miss hanging out with the girl from the pet store. I sure do know a whole lot of dead people. But Striper were has-beens by the time I was in my final year of university, doing one final album with a de-emphasizing of all the references to Jesus, an abandoning of their yellow and black look the growing of 90s Evil Spock goatees and all the rest of it. And then, they were gone. Next for me was a band whose guitarist Ty Tabor had been featured in a bunch of the guitar magazines I was looking at in the music stores. They were rumored to possibly be Christian and were called King's X. This Texas trio was heavy, but not like metal, more in a late 80s proto-grunge way lauded by Guitar Player magazine. 90s bands like Soundgarden, would cite Ty Tabor and King's X in general as being key influences in what soon became their own chart-topping sound and technique. <music> Ty Tabor was also responsible for quiet, Beatles-influenced, non-hair metal ballady songs, which were often ponderings on critical, judgmental legalism in churches. Now, here was a guy singing from personal experience about the bad things Christians do to each other at church. I had never heard of such a thing sung about before. The smell of hell is what I smell, and you hand it out with handshakes every day? A chance to live and walk free of that legalism and oppression? A legal kill, indeed.
1: To live
0: in no, a legal Doug Pinnock of King's X could also casually scream all the live long day. <laughs> but in a more James Brown inspired way. I got very into playing King's X very loudly when driving the family car around alone, especially in those times when I felt particularly bad or particularly good. It was deeply angry, beautiful, surreal, playful, aggressive, dark, confused, and wounded. A whole lot of conflicting things were going on there. Nobody much besides me liked it. Naturally, once lead singer Doug Pinnock came out of the closet as not only being black, which they had already known, but being gay as well, which they hadn't, the Christian South turned on King pretty conclusively. They never really came back after that one in terms of sales. That's one reason I've been able to experiment during this performance drought of COVID with uploading to Ty Tabor of King tracks of my music for him to master for a fee at his side project, Alien Beans Studio, and haggling with him through email about how much limiting and EQing the songs need and so on. He's been very nice. I've learned a lot from him, enough to make me want to, as usual, do it all myself. Ty, like Michael Sweet and so many others, is selling spare guitars and gear online trying to make a buck. This is not a time that's being very kind financially to people who make their money performing to rooms filled with tightly packed people. I have leaned heavily on albums of dark, fast, angry music at certain times in my life, sweetened by the occasional ballad but it's not something I can really do myself. I have never learned to really properly play shredding speed metal guitar solos, though I've picked up a few of the tricks out of context after a fashion. Even with nerve damage to my left hand from MS, I can still do taps. But I'm right-handed, and there is less neurological damage to my right hand, so I can more easily do things like whammy bar dives. And fast picking, and general drop D thrashing. A genuine article not the whole metal package i don't know the scales and riffs and progressions my heart's in vocals melody lines and harmony and i can't growl or yarl or scream much at all which is kind of what that music needs i can sing like cookie monster for only a line or two before i start coughing ken tamplin would not approve My voice is just in the wrong range to sing any kind of aggressive music and is so smooth and mellow and soft that I've always struggled to know how to use it with aggressive guitar I've gleefully played. People I've played with in bands have blamed my vocal handicap on my general lack of drinking, smoking, and shouting. They were always a bit alarmed at clear church hymn influences showing up in the songs I wrote, too. I can sing in a soft, smooth falsetto, which involves skipping up past the range most people would sing in, and cheating an octave while disengaging my chest from the sound so my voice doesn't break up, and it's a tiny whine that's all in my head and throat with very little air behind it. <laughs> When I try a Michael Sweet style falsetto scream with lots of guts into it, it sounds mellow and stupid and faux operatic. Ah. The closest I could come to being a metal singer would be to mimic Rob Zombie saying yeah over and over again. And maybe feebly aping some Ramstein.
1: It's true inside Through hell Nine Nine We'll Out this shine It's true inside Through hell
0: Sisters of Mercy, maybe, but generally, no. And my circle of musicians has just never included anyone who is primarily doing metal. Metal became very niche in the 80s when everyone went alternative, and it's still niche today. People who play metal tend to play nothing else, and I mainly do something else. For the song Solitary, I struggled endlessly with how to make a song that was a bit metal, but still have me singing it. When I was hunched over my electric in the studio, cathartically chugging along with the drums, trying to channel Tony Iommi, Chris, the sound engineer, looked at me and thoughtfully said, You know, I think you're better at that than acoustic guitar. Chris was excellent and highly trained at both. And it's true. I never learned the majority of the theory, riffs, and tricks of acoustic or of electric either. At heart, I'm a writer who sometimes writes songs and who strums along with myself while I sing them. I know many guys who are the exact opposite. They're like a jukebox that plays only the instrumental guitar parts of classic rock songs. Intros mostly. Riffs. Some solos. Once the singing starts, they've lost interest and moved on to the next song. I'm the guy who always wanted to play various songs in bands which songs I only knew how to sing and that not very aggressively or impressively, and I never knew the guitar intro that started the song off. But I really love aggressive music on occasion. I just can't quite pull it off myself very easily. Back in the Studio B days, I'd gotten a guy named Tim, who I'd seen playing drums with blues bands locally, to come in. He made a somewhat careful, somewhat elaborate part for this song that was in retrospect somewhat at odds with how metal I was trying to make it. time, I was blown away by how hard some of it was to play, but in retrospect, it didn't really fit the song overly well, so I booked Raven Street Studios years later and re-recorded Chris Medcalf playing more metal-appropriate drums for it. Sometimes, just hitting them harder gives the sound you need. Adam Fogo, also not a metal player, had played bass for me at Studio B, belonged to Tim's drums, so I'm lucky Adam's bassline doesn't sound more surprised to be playing with Chris than it does. I have found that re-recording drums to fully recorded songs is rather like yanking someone's skeleton out and trying to carve a new one to slide back in there. All of the instrument parts are responding to a drum part that's not the one you're listening to anymore. Helps if you re-record some of the singing and guitar parts to the new drums. At Studio B, I did Black Sabbath-inspired electric rhythm guitar, shocking everyone as people assumed I was really a quiet, acoustic, soft-voiced musician who shouldn't try anything else. First I used my own BC Rich electric. But when I got the chance to borrow an Epiphone Les Paul to give it that Gibson sound, I had to go with that. I think it really took it up a notch. That added Epiphone is likely recorded at home later. Also this computer messing around with the guitar sound for one part is too. Put in some church organ. And did some odd things for background vocal harmonies with my sister, thinking of the dog or wolf howling thing from the romantic song. For the outro, I wanted to evoke the subterranean solitude I was talking about by putting in the sounds of water dripping, which is movie shorthand for Dungeon. To do this, years after the studio had gone mics up, I close-miked my cat's big porcelain water bowl, filled to the top, and dripped water into it from my fingertips from eye level and put a big reverb on that. enamored of the 90s quiet loud quiet loud thing i wanted the electric guitars to go off like a bomb so i decided to put in the sound of a bomb ticking obviously none of the ticking sounds i could find were on beat to my song and nothing i tapped on sounded much like a clock ticking either so i ended up stealing the stopwatch sound from the show 60 minutes superimposing that over a bit of drumming in my computer and visually sliding each tick onto beat with the fallibly human rather than machine-perfect drums, then sliding the ticking back to the start of the song where there are no drums. The incredibly subtle symbology here is that, in terms of marriage, the year 2030 approaching me like a freight train, the clock was ticking. My solitude felt like a sentence I was serving, as society, both church and mainstream, judged me guilty of being too dark and twisted and complicated to make good, pliable, stable, reassuringly solvent husband material. And I thought, if I had to do my 30s single, I might very well blow up. There wasn't the term incel back then, and I don't identify at all with them today, but just saying no to the various sexual opportunities that fall loose-limbed and pantingly disheveled across a young man's path while trying to put together something more serious and never landing that big old jet airliner or even coming close made one feel and frequently get called a cosmic fool of the very first order. The song was a desperate plea for God to honor what I felt was his end of the bargain, despite my church and almost every Christian I knew, female or otherwise, having tossed me roughly to the curb with a clear intention of carefully avoiding me for the rest of my life, pretending I died until that really happened. Years later, I met a few local pastors. What is it with pastors all being tall, fat guys with cool glasses, a collection of nice shirts, and a wife that's hotter than they are? They all seem, like Saul, to be head and shoulders above the crowd for some reason, almost like CEOs and presidents of the United States of America or something, like people want that in a leader. One such pastor, inquiring how I'd ended up single and unchurched, told me, as to not engaging in what I'm sure he would have called a season of promiscuous recreational dating and sex, Well, well you've, you've more, more than, than made major your point, point to God, God about, about this, this one. one. But it was never about making a point. It was never about not breaking a rule, either. It was about trying to build a lasting relationship on a foundation I thought made sense and would last, some kind of friendship or deeper emotional connection first before communicating one's feelings physically. And what I have found, at least how it has seemed to me, is that most modern women, church or otherwise, if you try to know them emotionally and psychologically on a deep level from the beginning, but don't initiate sex fairly early on, assume you don't like them or that they don't really understand you. Or they have no way of really interacting with you and quickly forever rule you out as a potential lover. Or maybe they are just far more comfortable sharing their body with someone they don't yet know terribly well than their spirit. True feelings, emotional issues, personal problems, and perspectives on past baggage seem to be more private for many modern women than shall we say their privates themselves. A lot of women I've hung out with are very comfortable walking around with plunging necklines and sheer yoga pants but are comparatively very bashful and ashamed of people checking out how deep they are spiritually or how toned, firm, and fit they are psychologically. And I've found that many people who proudly call themselves spiritual are really saying they're physically healthy and in touch with their bodies rather than their spirits, often in terms of crystals, yoga, aromatherapy, acupuncture, essential oils, and not eating meat, also knowing how to breathe. And I haven't found that these people are noticeably, measurably more reliable, emotionally stable and genuinely philosophical or theologically informed. But maybe, I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, this song was about feeling cast out as a leper outcast unclean by secular and church society as a whole and not seen as a viable dating choice. One older Brethren light guy reconnecting years later asked me why I was single if I was not, as he had heard, gay. I asked him, why, do you know why any I single, single woman? women? Well, he being older than I had adult daughters and told me, I, I would, would never introduce, introduce a Christian, Christian woman to a man, a man who isn't connected with a church, of, church some kind. of some kind. Goodness knows controlling psychos never attend churches, do they? Well, in my wholly unjudgmental opinion, most of the people in most of the churches I have tried to connect with after receiving a registered letter from my own branding me a wicked person and mandating I be shunned globally turned out to be What's a theologically accurate, tactful term? Ninnies. In keeping with that, I did my best to put in some 70s satanic panic sounding backwards masking in the song. But it was a Bible verse, with God commenting on Adam, who fortunately wasn't a furry of any kind.
1: It is not good for the man to be alone.
0: The man was alone all the time, and equipped with ample time and sound editing computer software. I wanted something odd for the outro to the song, rather than doing the good old 70s radio fade-out, so I had the song end by doing a very different version of the last verse of In the Hole, the previous song entirely. Like Solitary, is an extended digression in the middle of In the Hole. I left Tim's different drumming in at the end to make it different, and because I felt bad losing it, left Tanya and Julian behind in the song in which they belonged, but took Bill's epic scream from it and used it again, because I sure can't do anything like that, I remember Adam Fogo taking the opportunity to use these odd things attached to his fingers to play the bass for that end part. They were like someone had sawed pencil-length bits off drumsticks or dowels and attached Velcro bands to them so one could extend one's fingers to double their normal length, and with these wooden things strapped on, then tap on the bass strings instead of plucking them. Made us think of Seinfeld. After Adam recorded his take, we all annoyingly went around the studio saying,
1: So Adam put these things on his fingers. What's up with that?
0: (laughs) The piece de resistance for this song was to be some shreddy, noodling nonsense metal lead guitar, and I knew no one who really did this primarily. Troy has always been a quick study and stepped just enough outside his classic rock wheelhouse to use an execrably corporate nautical image I'm not on board with launching this sentence with, to deliver just what I wanted, and which I certainly could not do myself. I just made Troy endlessly noodle for a few tracks to get a sea of Troy sounds down to set sail... Damn it.
1: A sullen silence sits A kind of melancholy mood A wilting of the wits The sounds are sounds that echoing ring And find no answer there The gloomy shapes there seem to bring Discomfort to the air it's so solitary. There is no hope, there is no friendship there Murky moves, sit and mow, all say they do not care the place is only to be found, beneath where flowers and children haul. A dreadful death down on the ground, beyond the glint of subtle stall But time and time again they call and hopelessly they wait. There is no answer from those walls. They do not meet a man.